On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with two sisters named Amelia and Rhea about growing up with psychologically and physically abusive parents. It's a story of generational trauma, victim playing, parentification, autonomy, CPTSD, and going no contact for good. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Rhea and Amelia. How are you? Doing all right. Which one was which? I don't know. (laughs) Amelia, how are you? I'm great. I am great. Sorry, I know we just talked about not talking over each other and then we both paused and then we both talked at the exact same time so (laughs) helpful (laughs) and Rhea how are you doing I'm doing well I yeah all things are good except I threw out my back recently which was a welcome to my 30s so I'm aging but we're good (laughs) so everyone Amelia and Rhea are sisters, and we are going to be talking about their abusive uh, upbringing today. But before we get to that, if you want to be a guest on our show, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions, and please send us an email either at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And today you're going to hear Amelia and Rhea's story. They are sisters and their parents are both abusers in this story, but the mom is going to be discussed more than the father, even though they they are both uh, abusers, but the mom would be the dominant abuser of the two in this story. And it's a really interesting story. We've never had sisters on this show before, and we'll get to hear about the ins and outs of how they dealt with it and how their family system worked and, you know, in the aftermath, how the relationship kind of continues and how it evolves throughout the relationship as well. So a really big thank you to both of them for being here. A big trigger warning for everyone that there is talk of physical abuse in this episode. There is talk of suicidal uh, ideation as well in this episode. So a big trigger warning for those things. And it's mentioned uh, throughout. The physical stuff is mentioned early on, but suicidal ideation stuff is mentioned throughout the the whole entire episode. So now that I've gotten all of that out of the way, you're going to be hearing Amelia, who is the oldest by five years, first, and I'm just going to get out of my way and your way. Amelia and Rhea, the floor is now yours. So both of our parents came from uh, really impoverished families. Um our mom was one of six children. Um, our mom's father had a gambling addiction and left our grandmother single with six children and no job. Um, so there were stories of the kids like carrying the one light bulb that they had in their house around to the different light fixtures so that they could have light. Um, 
sharing a single roll of toilet paper. We're pretty sure that she was sexually abused at one point um, by another member of the family. From what she's told us, it seems like she was really um, like soft-spoken and shy um, and just sort of standoffish, I would say. Our grandpa was super abusive, um, used to throw like uh, packets of frozen hamburger meat at our mom's head and our aunt's head um, and call them whores when they were like, I don't know, nine and 10 is what was relayed to us. Um, and so I think she kind of, and then our grandma had a severe depression with psychosis after our grandpa left and was hospitalized and given electroshock therapy in the hospital. Um, and kind of just didn't, wasn't able to parent anymore. So I think she kind of just like raised herself and found my dad when they were both like 16. Our dad's parents were also divorced. Our grandmother on that side had a really bad um, drinking problem. And our dad, as a little kid, would be left at home alone for days at a time. Um, so eventually he went to go live with his father who had started another family and the kids in the new family were allowed to be like on the main floor of the house, but our dad was locked in a basement. So anytime he was home, he had to like be in the basement. And if he didn't arrive, like just on time for the meal times or wasn't following whatever rule, they would put like a padlock on the fridge so he couldn't eat. And so they both found each other coming from like this, these super broken homes. Yeah, then they, they got married at 17 and 18, and um, my dad enrolled in the Marine. They could get out of that hometown, um, and they started building a life together, which I think just, like, speaks to how much uh, codependence there is in their relationship. So what was the dynamic of your parents' relationship? Was there a dominant person in this relationship? How did it all work? Like the expectation was that if like for him to be with her, he better provide like he needs to provide this certain level, this certain socioeconomic status or class. And if he doesn't, then she would berate him and tell him that he was a failure, that she would go find someone who could um, keep, like have her better kept and who made more money. And she would I remember she would like his mom left him when he was a little kid. So she would threaten to leave him and say things like, I'm going to leave you just like your mom did. Um, so just like poke into those wounds. And yeah, I mean, it, it was just a cycle of, of her berating him. And then she would berate us. And I think maybe for my dad, there was such a deep fear that like she would leave. So he would totally enable her. Um, and try to get us to just like comply and do what we need to do to make sure that she was happy, which there was nothing we could do to make her happy. So your dad is playing out this role that is something that he always wanted or needed and he really can't let that escape. And he's really caught in that codependent trap for your mom. What is your mom's MO? If you had to say like, this is who my mom is. This is how uh, she views society. And this is how she thinks society views her. Uh, how would you kind of describe her in that way? 
Oh, we got a finger put up here. Go for it, Amelia. Um, I would say if you were going to describe my mom, you would say that she is always the victim. In every situation, she is going to find a way to make herself the victim. Um, she also, at least how she be she portrays it, there's two very different sides of her. There is the public appearance of her, and then there is the actual her. Um, I would say she was very good at presenting our family in one way to the public and very much like we don't talk about these things outside of the home and she had she like was incapable of having any friendships um and I didn't understand that when I was younger I understand it now um I can understand why someone like her would be incapable of having friendships but um you know she always there would always be something wrong with that person like oh this person is is uh, sometimes it was just like their physical appearance like she would be like oh i can't be friends with that person because um they're too overweight or they don't look a certain way or she would just say like oh they're annoying i don't like them but then she also she never had any friends and she would complain about not having any friends and i never understood it because she always had a reason why that person wasn't good enough. Um, and then she has this incredible, and I still, I really struggle with people like this to this day because there are other people like this that exist. It's very triggering for me. She had to have, I actually used to play this game with myself where I would say something and wait for her to comment on it. And she's incapable of having an opinion about anything without it, without there has to be something negative in there somewhere. It's somewhere, it's somewhere like you could take her to Disney World and be like, you get the whole park is to yourself today. You can, you don't have to wait in line. You free food. You can do whatever you want. And she would be that person that would be like, well, it's too hot today. I'm not having fun. Like there just has to be something all the time. Um, yeah, that's how I would describe her. <laughs> I would, I would add to that. I think she, she was always the victim. And there was also this sense of like um, this immense sacrifice that she had made for so many people. She, her whole identity was wrapped up in the fact that she sacrificed so much to make sure that we had money. She sacrificed so much to get our brother through school. It was like a martyr of like, I've given so much and no one has appreciated me. And therefore um, you all hate me and I'm not good enough. And I'm going to threaten suicide, basically. So we're going to try and weave Amelia's story and Rhea's story uh, back and forth here. But Amelia, you are five years older than your sister Rhea. So start us off and tell us about your experience growing up in this household. So I was the first child, the first and only child for the first five years. And to be honest, I mean, you know, like anybody else, I don't think you have that many solid memories from that time. But, you know, and then my sister came along when I was about five or six. My mom was not always a very kind person. And um, I very quickly felt like I was supposed to fill that mother role to my sister um, whenever my mom was upset or whenever anything was wrong with her. Um, one of my first, one of my first memories is actually 
um, a very reoccurring thing that happened in my life. The first time I remember it, I was about five or six. I suppose it could have started earlier and I wouldn't remember, but um, my mom used to set me down generally after she had maybe been in bed for a couple of days. She, I think she, now I think she was obviously depressed, but at the time, you know, I didn't know what it was. Um, and she would call me in there and essentially just say that she really wasn't happy and um, that if I couldn't try to find a way to make her happy or um, take care of whatever she needed that, you know, she would either say kind of rotated between, um, you know, mommy's either gonna, I'm, I'm gonna leave and I'm probably not gonna come back or that she uh, was going to kill herself. And obviously as a young child, that's very, very disturbing um, to hear and also not really understand what or how you're supposed to fix that or what you're supposed to do with that. And the sad thing was that that happened so frequently in my childhood that once I got past, I mean, I honestly don't even know how many times it took. I'm assuming it took quite a few times, but I eventually got to a point where I realized that nothing was really going to happen. And she, she would, um, she would say that. And then sometimes she would leave and disappear for, um, two or three days and nobody would know where she was. Um, but she never harmed herself, which I think other than the idea of your mom abandoning you, um, you know, that was, that was really scary for me too. So I think finally realizing that she maybe wasn't going to do that kind of added another layer of, I, I mean, I think at that point, I just kind of lost any trust in anything that she said, um, because I think I learned that she would say things just to manipulate. So then, like I said, after my sister was born, that continued um, along with many other things. I think that my mom was most certainly the um, the aggressor of a lot of the issues and definitely the person to have a lot of those narcissistic personality traits. Um, and my dad, you know, they got together when they were teens at a really young age. And I think that he was extremely codependent on her. And I mean, vice versa, I think they both very much fed off of each other and really didn't know, you know, it really didn't feel like they had separate identities, kind of felt like they were just the same uh, person. And unfortunately, um, you know, my mom would, would do these things, all these horrible, you know, the verbal abuse was constant, um, and the threatening and the trying to control with, you know, how we were, weren't making her happy. And my dad, I remember on numerous occasions and, um, I don't know if, I mean, I think Rhea was involved in this several times too, but as the oldest child, I felt like I had to do it a lot. I would try when my mom was either out of the house or was sleeping or something, I would try to go to my dad and um, it would essentially beg him to try to do something or to help us or, you know, because um, if you could get him alone, sometimes you could get him to admit that what my mom had done was was terrible or really upsetting. But it wasn't even always that he, you know, a lot of times he would make excuses for her, but sometimes it wasn't even that. Sometimes he he thought he was being helpful by trying to help you find solutions to kind of like stay under her radar. Um, I remember he had this analogy that he would use of her being like an angry bear, or like a crabby bear. When we were kids, I see Rhea shaking her head. She remembers this. Um, and we would like, if we came home and, you know, I think a lot of people with narcissistic parents can relate to this. Like I didn't know that it was abnormal to, 
come home after school and just try to like feel the house and like feel if there was any tension in the air um and try to listen for sounds and hear if like you know I felt like I could hear doors being closed angrily or like was everything okay you know because you were constantly trying to kind of read the situation to make sure that you were safe I didn't know that wasn't normal behavior for a very long time but yeah he would you know we would go to him and like beg him like can you please like can you can mom needs help like can you help us like next time she gets like that can you please like just tell her to stop um and yeah he would just tell us to he would be like oh let's just play the game you know your mom's a, a grumpy bear and she went into her room and she's sleeping right now so let's let her hibernate and let's be really quiet so we don't wake her up because you know this would maybe be after she had raged about something for an hour or two and berated all of us and finally like gone into the bedroom and so he would essentially tell us like just be quiet so she stays in her room and doesn't remember to like come back out and yell at you some more so that you know that part continued um I did feel like I as the oldest child like I said was definitely parentified a lot um you know I think there's the quote-unquote normal things that happen to older children like you know of course it's not abnormal for the older child when they're at an appropriate age to maybe watch the other kids for a little bit and help out but um it was definitely to a level where, you know, if, if our mom did do the thing where she would just disappear when she was unhappy and nobody knew where she was, um, it was just kind of assumed that I was just going to take over a lot of those things as far as like caring for my sister. And then, um, when I was 10 or 11, our brother came along. So then him as well, which at that point I was even older. So, so Amelia, how are you feeling at this time? You know, there just wasn't any sense of safety anywhere. Um, I felt like, and I honestly still feel this way. I, I work on it a lot and I sometimes will get glimpses of it, but I don't really understand how to feel safe and just relax. Um, like I've never understood, like, you know, I have friends who grew up in very normal situations and you know, they would always say things like, oh, it's just so nice to just like relax and and, like let your guard down and like not think about anything. And I'm like, I've never done that in my life because I don't understand what it's like to just think, oh, someone else has got this, like someone else will take care of it. I don't, I mean, I, I remember vividly like several points of realizing of different things like, oh, this is just how my life is. Like I have to do this differently. And, um, I remember one of them was, I, who knows something had happened to me as a kid like maybe I got hurt or maybe I was upset about something and I I remember going to my mom and trying to talk to her about it and um it became very clear that talking to them or confiding in them like was not a safe place because they were either going to ridicule me for what I was upset about or they would maybe act like they were helping in the moment, but it would always be information that was held on to in case they could use it against me later. Um, whether that be because they realized that that was something that really upset me. So maybe like they could do it another time to upset me or just that, you know, I don't know, something embarrassing had happened to me and they could just hang on to that to use it to upset me later. Um, and, you know, as the oldest kid, I didn't really feel, you know, I was trying 
as best I could with what little tools I had to protect my sister and brother. So I didn't want to talk to them about it more than I needed to, um, because I was trying to keep them away from it. And then my parents or our parents instilled at us from a very young age that, um, we really didn't talk about what went on outside of the house. So I just felt alone and unsafe all of the time, I would say. So there's this psychological abuse that is going on inside the household, but you also wrote me and told me about physical abuse that was going on. So I guess walk us through this part of uh, your childhood. I think that when I was younger, and Rhea may have to talk more about this because I don't, to be honest, I, this, and this has been funny while I've been, you know, because I tried to make some notes before we did this. And honestly, it just reminded me how much of my childhood I actually don't remember. (laughs) There's a, there's a lot of holes, which um, eh, sometimes I want to know what happened then. And then other times I'm like, maybe we'll just leave it where it is. But um, I do. Yes, I think. um, So when I was younger, and I honestly, I don't know when this stopped, because I know it did stop. Um, but we did used to be punished by, um, if you did something, I mean, I don't honestly don't even remember what it would have been, but, um, my dad did have, he did have a a belt. Um, and my parents had like this larger walk-in closet. And I do remember that you would have to go into the walk-in closet if you were going to get quote unquote spanked with this belt. Um, I'm assuming because we were quieter. I think, I think Ray is just remembering this because she's looking at me like she's, I, I think she forgot. Um, so I do remember that. I think that as we got older, I think that definitely phased out because I do have very vivid memories of it when we were younger. I remember several times either I was in trouble and Rhea would try to we essentially would like physically fight our parents to keep out of being dragged like into the closet. Um, I remember fighting my parents on several occasions to try to keep Ray out of the closet or vice versa. Um, and actually, you know what, now that I'm thinking about this, sometimes it helps me to talk about things because I won't remember them. And then if I start talking about them, I remember, and I actually do remember what happened now. I remember what that, I remember when I got older, I realized what child protective services was. Um, and so I started, I would save it for like when things were really bad. Um, but I remember when I was old enough to know that what they were doing was not okay. Um, I I threatened my mom with that. I think either myself or Rhea had gotten quote unquote spanked with the belt. And um I went, I went and yelled at my mom essentially and said, like, if if you guys keep doing that to us, I, I'm going to let CPS know what you're, what you're doing. And she, um, her reaction to that, when I started bringing it up, I think that was the first time I brought it up, but she would, she would laugh. Um, which I remember the first couple of times she laughed just being, you know, I just was constantly reaffirmed that like, this was not a safe place. Um, she just, she would laugh and she had this, like, there was like the normal laugh. And then there was this just like cold, awful, like just terrifying laugh that she had. 
Um, and it was that laugh was the laugh that you got when she was not in a good place. Um, and she would laugh at me and she would say, she would say things like, well, why don't you go ahead and call them? Um, and that's fine. They probably will take you guys away, but just so you know, they're going to separate you and you, none of you are going to be together and you'll probably never see each other again. And I knew enough to know what CPS was, but I definitely didn't know anything about the processes of how that worked. And so I essentially took her for her word and just thought, oh my gosh, well, I can't, can't do that because then what are my brother and sister going to do? Like, we can't be separated. How, what would we do? Um, but it was enough for them to stop doing that. Um, so there was that, which, sorry, do you have something you want to say, Rhea? I was just going to say, I think you're forgetting, like, it, it's just interesting because I didn't remember the, the closet and the belt thing, but as you got older as well, you had braces. And around that time you started like standing up for us more and, and, and started to see, I think the dysfunction and all of it. And I remember something that happened on a regular basis was it was usually mom, but dad did it too. They would grab her by the mouth, like on the outsides of her cheeks. And, you know, you have the brackets and they would like push in her mouth so much that the inside of it was bleeding to try to like get her to stop talking. Or like, I just remember them being like that mouth and they would like hold it so tight and you would be bleeding. And then, and then I, I just, the most sort of vivid memory that I have in terms of physical abuse was right around the time that Amelia was going to graduate high school. And, um, we, I remember our mom was having some kind of a depressive episode or she was probably uh, saying that she was going to attempt suicide and Amelia and my mom were arguing about something. I'm sure Amelia was just defending us and my mom's despair or suffering seemed to be elevating. And then you see that codependent in our codependence in our dad. And they were both laying on the bed and Amelia and I were standing in the hallway. And I just remember my dad shot up and he tackled her down the hallway and I grabbed him and he's, our dad's an ex-Marine. Okay. So that's like important context. Um, I jumped on his back to try to get him off of her. And I remember her head hit a, like one of the spindles on the stairs. Um, and you broke out that spindle with your head and I don't know. I don't know if he punched you or if it was just like you hit your face on the, it doesn't really matter. You hit your face on something. And then Amelia had a black eye um, when she graduated high school or it was like that spring. It was close to your graduation because I remember you had to hide it from your teachers and like in the pictures. And our mom just laid there and did nothing. And it was like those kinds of things would happen. And, and I think we would just go, I don't know. After that, we probably drove away. We'd like go get ice cream or we'd like go to our room or just try to escape somehow. But it it was just never addressed. It was just, that just happened. Would you address it with each other and like kind of break it down? And were you able to share your feelings? And if so, how were you feeling? That's difficult for me to answer because I feel like, I feel like we were always a, um, a physical presence in one another's lives, especially as we got older. Like we started getting closer around the time that Amelia was leaving for college. And, but I can only speak for myself and I'm guessing for my sister. I, 
I don't honestly feel like I had feelings that I was aware of for most of my life. Like it was just, there was no space for it. I knew that if I like let on to anyone that I was feeling something that the, the pot would boil over in our household. Like there, like it felt like I would not survive if I showed someone that I was feeling sad or anxious or whatever. So it's like, I, you would just sort of split that part off and just like, yes, that's there. Like dissociate, just, just go, you're over there. And I still struggle with that to this day. So it was kind of like, after things like that would happen, we would be together. Um, We might like watch a movie. We might sleep in the same bed. We might like, even with our brother too, we might like go get frozen yogurt or something, but it would kind of just be like, wow, this is really messed up. Yeah. And like, that was it. You know, it's just, we, we, there was no safe place that it could have been between us, but I don't think we really knew how to feel or how to talk about it. Honestly, would you agree or? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think that was something I definitely learned early on. I did not know what dissociation was, but I do remember, um, one time my parents had been fighting and I think it was when Rhea was a baby. So it was just me at this point. And I used to, my parents thought it was this cute, fun thing I did, but um, it really wasn't. I um, I would hide in my closet in my bedroom, and I learned that I could just tell them that it was because it was my fort, but really it was because I was just hoping that if they didn't see me, they wouldn't find something to, you know, because if they were in a bad mood, um, you could literally just be walking down the hallway, and then you would somehow become you had caused an offense in some way. And then once the fighting started, especially as a child, like before we could drive or had any type of independence, you would try to run away by just like going to a different spot in the house, but they would just follow you. And there was nothing. I mean, it it was like, they would just badger you by just like screaming at you until they got some type of reaction out of you. Um, so I learned I remember something happened and my mom had yelled at me about something. And then I remember thinking like, wow, this would just be so much easier if I just like, didn't have to feel like this anymore. And then I was like, I wonder if I can just like not feel it. And then I can't remember. I had like some terms, I don't know, some little kid term for it, but I, I essentially just learned to like, not feel anything and just not worry about it. And, and that's exactly what would happen. Raya's right. We would have these, like that time that my dad did do that. Um, yeah, I mean, our dad's an ex-Marine. He's a large person. Um, and he did. He charged at me. We ran into the um, the stairwell. The spindles fell out. And then um, when I hit my face, it was actually like I had gotten back and I went back down the hallway and our father followed me. And then he kind of like pushed me and I and I hit my head on the, I hit my face on the door frame. Um, and so then, yeah, I did have a, I had a black eye from that and like, it's something like that would happen. And then it was like, yeah, our parents would just go into their bedroom and they, and it would literally never be mentioned again. And, and that was the case with every single count of like fights, verbal, physical abuse, whatever it was, it was just like, once they had gotten out, whatever it was they needed to get out, then they would just disappear and they would never talk about it again. And when we were younger, we just didn't talk about it either because we didn't know 
we had never been taught how to process like any emotion at all. So yeah, we would physically be together, like Rhea said, but um, when we were younger, I don't think we knew how to talk about it or what to say. So we would either just sit there and be upset or yeah, we would just sit there and like stare sometimes because we didn't know, we just didn't know what to do. My default became really whenever I got to know anybody or they would ask me any question about myself, I never gave anybody um, like full or correct answers because everything that I said, I was always filtering for any information that I felt that somebody could use against me, which is crazy. But that's the type of relationships I was taught. Like I thought that everybody was like that. I thought that's how things were. And so I think initially, I think that our relationships with each other were also stunted because I think we didn't know at first when we were little, like, are my brother and sister going to turn against me too? Like, is this just how everybody is? You know, if I tell my sister that I'm really upset about this, is she going to use it against me too? I don't know. So I think it took a long time before we felt comfortable, like verbally communicating those things to each other. You know, for a while, we kept it very simple. Like, I think one of the only things that Rhea and I would talk about was when when I got to the point where I was so desensitized by my by our mom threatening self-harm or threatening to leave that she would say it to me and she didn't get the reaction she would want because I would just say, okay, I mean, I'm I, all right, that's fine. Go ahead, I guess. Because she had said it so frequently. Then she started doing it to Rhea uh, instead because she wasn't getting the reaction she wanted. And I remember the first time Rhea came to me, um, I think she was six and she was just hysterical. Um, as I'm sure I was when I was that age, but I didn't have anybody to go talk to about it. But, uh, and then she told me that, you know, our mom had, had told her those things and that she wasn't happy and she was going to kill her essentially all the same stuff that she had said to me. Um, and I think that was the first honest conversation we had about that stuff because I was trying to explain to Rhea no 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 she's because at this point I don't think Rhea had was aware that this had been happening to me and so I was trying to explain to Rhea no 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 she she says that all the time you don't have to worry she doesn't mean it you know and I remember I didn't have the tools or the words to explain to her what I was trying to explain to her and of course you know she was still terrified and didn't believe me I don't know how many times that took either, but at some point Rhea finally realized that I was right and that she may disappear for a few days, but she wasn't actually going to do anything to herself. Um, But yeah, I think that unfortunately, I guess kind of opened up a little bit of emotional communication between us, but it definitely took a lot longer before we even realized. Um, I don't think for a long time until after a few years that both of us got out of that house, I don't think we realized how bad it was. I think we, I think we had very much normalized a lot of what had happened to us and thought that ours was maybe a little bit worse than some people's houses, but that this type of stuff must happen in everyone's house. But, and, uh, I took, I feel like, especially before I left the house, a lot of that like physical altercation, it came down on me because my default kind of became when they would start to threaten us when I got older I would just attack them because I I learned that if I was scary enough and aggressive enough they may actually leave us alone if it was too much trouble I ended up being physically bigger than both of my parents by the time I was grown 
And my mom, my mom used to occasionally smack me. And I do remember the last time she smacked me, I grabbed her hand as she went to smack me because I was bigger than her at that point. And I remember telling her like, you're not going to hit me anymore, you know, and I didn't hit her back, but I just told her like, we're done. We're done with this now. So Amelia, you ended up graduating high school, you went to university, and you wrote to me that you felt very unprepared while you were there. The psychological abuse took a toll on your self-confidence to do anything by yourself, and you were still being parentified uh, by your parents because you were mediating arguments over the phone. They would call you, and you were also still feeling guilt and responsibility for your siblings. So I guess right now, Rhea, let's talk about your experience. So take us to the beginning of your story. So I was the golden child probably from birth. So my sister was the parent and I, um, my mom put me in beauty pageants. I would be sort of like, like toted around like a little accessory. I was also highly independent because even though my sister was like a parent to us, I just saw that there was no room in the household for me to need anything. There was not the emotional capacity on my parents. And so I remember, and this is a story that my mom used to tell because she was like proud of it. But looking back now, I realize how kind of sad it is. But from the time I was like three or four, I would, I would bathe myself, clean up the whole bathroom and then go and find my mom and say, the bathroom is ready for inspection. And she would like come and make sure that it was all clean. And so I just had this like high level of perfectionism when it came to physical appearance, when it came to grades, to sports, I was supposed to be and was for a long time, like the ambassador to the community to try and show the community that there was nothing to see here. And we had a normal family. And if they were truly abusive parents, or if they truly had these mental health concerns that they had, then how could they have a daughter like this? Um, and I, I just remember too, like other examples where my mom would go to um, parent teacher conferences and had a couple teachers who told her like, or asked her, I guess, like, I don't know what you did, but I want to know whatever you did to make this little girl. She's just so conscientious. She's so bright. She's so outgoing and caring. And my mom would kind of use that as ammunition or evidence to me to to show herself and to show the world like look I must be such a good parent because look how proud they are of you and so how can you question anything that we're doing here right but yeah I I tried so I tried to just just be perfect just have no feelings um I I had to ways of being two personalities when I'm, I'm a lot more outgoing than my sister is, even though I would say she's more assertive. So when I was at school, I was, um, super talkative, wanted to do all the activities, but when I got home, I just didn't like want to be noticed. I like, like she talked about, you didn't want to poke the grizzly bear. So you just kind of tried to stay under the radar, have no need, have no feelings and just, just disappear. So so yeah, that was my role. And that continued. My sister absolutely was my parent. I have lots of memories of her just like um, my head just being in her lap and she's sort of sitting like crisscross applesauce and she has like her arms over me and is just like yelling 
at my parents to leave me alone, just yelling, like, leave her alone, leave her alone. But there was this, I would also say with, with the verbal abuse um, and the emotional abuse, it was a tricky line for me to walk because um, they wanted me to like, like I said, show the world that we were this normal family. Um, But at the same time, there would be like fees associated with that. So um, if I played a sport or um, did an arts thing, you might have to sign a permission slip and pay a certain amount of money. And so I would do those things, but then I have so many memories of, of my dad, like yelling in my face that we were going to lose the house because I was doing a sport. And I would say just like coming back as the golden child to my mom threatening suicide and to my mom threatening self-harm. And so the way that I internalized that was I must not be good enough to keep her around. Like I didn't, I didn't perform highly enough. I'm not a good enough daughter. I didn't make her feel loved enough. And so my mom doesn't feel like it's worth it to be on earth anymore with me. And I, I still am trying to like unlearn that. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, my sister left. Um, so she would, she would have been 18 or 17 and I was around 12. Um, and I, I was still in that in that golden child role, but then my brother has some specific needs because he has autism um, and some other mental health concerns. And so um, I definitely moved also into the parentified child role. Um, my mom had no one else to to direct her rage to, no one else to take things out. So that I kind of became the punching bag. And I actually remember before my sister left her telling me that that it was coming to expect it. She knew it was coming. Um, I don't know how you prepare for that sort of thing, but I tried, you know, and, uh, but no, when it comes to, to parenting, our brother, um, homework was a really big thing for him because he was really bright, but he had a hard time, um, like figuring out which tasks to do in order. He would get, he would get distracted. He was pretty oppositional, um, which I understand because the environment in the house was probably so chaotic for him. And so she would attempt to help him with his homework, but then like she would become emotionally dysregulated so quickly and just start like screaming at him and he would scream back and he would cry, especially when he was little. And then she would just sort of fold and um, just say, I can't do this anymore. And she would walk to her bedroom and just say, Rhea, take care of it. Um, make sure he gets it done. And so I would, and I was usually successful in that because I, I just treated my brother like a human being and was able to like, like I said, my emotions were so split off. I could stay pretty calm with him um, because I wasn't feeling much of anything and we would get his work done. So yeah, I kind of fell into this role of like parenting a child with, with specific needs when I was about 12. I became the new punching bag, but I, I've never been as assertive as my sister. Um, my sister would always like say something back or ask them to stop. I usually would just try to go to my room and just like get away from it, but they would follow me. They would, they've broken down my door before um, and just 
and just seek you out. Right. Um, and so eventually once I got to high school, I started to see the dysfunction for what it was. I started to, um, hang out with friends who had parents who weren't like that. And I, and got a feel for like what other households were like. And so, um, I kind of just, it fit into my golden child role, but I very intentionally signed up for every activity I could do. So, um, I think I would have dance in the morning at six. Um, and I would usually be at school for practice or rehearsal until like 10 PM at night. And just like the least amount of time I could spend at home, the better. And that, that caused problems. It caused problems because, you know, we were talking about characterizing our mom earlier. And I would say a a big thing about her is that she really lacks like a sense of identity at all. Um, So, so we are her whole sense of identity. And once I started to develop that through the arts and through the sports I was playing and the friendships and relationships I was creating with healthy adults, um, I think that really threatened her. And so she would try to sabotage that in different ways, you know, just telling me that like, oh, well, so-and-so's mom that you've been hanging out with is are so stuck up. Or, you know, um, I actually went to school with that girl's mom and she used to bully me in high school. And so you shouldn't talk to her. You shouldn't be friends with her. So like any attempt she could make to kind of like turn this person who would be positive for me into an enemy, she would do. And to the point where um, my senior year, I was involved in an activity at school and she called the coach of that activity and told the coach that I had said all these horrible things about her and about the other um, girls and their moms on the team, which wasn't true. And that was addressed like publicly in a practice. And I just had to, I remember just crying and just saying to the whole team, there's like 30 people, like, I'm so sorry. Like, I, I don't know what to say. I don't know why she does this. Like, I actually really like being with all of you. Like, I, I, I have no explanation. Even then, I was just like dumbfounded about why someone would do that. And so there, there was that. And then I think another, shockingly, a piece of this that we haven't talked about that yet is our dad. So he was extremely codependent, always managing our mom's emotions, trying to keep us from poking the bear. Um, but he also had psychosis. A major thing that I really started doing from a young age, I couldn't tell you how early, but I know I was doing it all through high school and until I went no contact with them, would be checking that he was taking his Risperidol, his medicine for his psychosis. They keep it hidden. I don't know why they hide it. Like everyone knows he takes it, but it's hidden in a certain place in his closet. Well, they hid it because he would try to take too much of it. So mom had to distribute it to him. Oh, that's right. Because dad also would threaten suicide or, you know. So it would be hidden in the closet. And, you know, every day or at least once a week, I would go in there and I would find the repair it all and check the refill date and calculate how many tabs should be left. And is he taking it? Because if he doesn't take it for a certain amount of days, then he would have visual hallucinations and delusions and be hospitalized. And that actually happened, that happened my senior year. So I think a theme that's interesting is that around the time that Amelia was graduating high school, our dad had an outburst of physical abuse against her. And around the time that I was graduating high school, um, he stopped taking his medicine 
and had a psychotic break um, during which he was threatening to kill us because he thought that the FBI was going to come and kill us because we were related to some someone famous. And so he was hospitalized. And I just remember like thinking of my role then I have this vivid memory of my mom um I'm sitting like sort of above her on the arm of like a lazy boy recliner and her head is in my lap and she's just crying about how dad can't work and how we're going to lose the house and he's probably going to be in a state of psychosis forever and we'll have to take him to the the state mental health institution and I'm like getting ready to graduate high school and just going through this transition but I just remember like stroking her hair like a mother would. And that's something that's still, I don't know, really di- difficult for me to talk about that that's what the role was like. So eventually you went to university. So tell us what this experience was like for you. Um, I actually went to the same college that my sister went to that was four hours away. And when I got there, I I think I, I felt a little more prepared socially than, than you did, sis. I think you would agree with that. But I did not, my, my nervous system wasn't prepared, if that makes sense. So I just remember like um, being in my dorm room and people in the dorm were like trying to get to know each other and make friends. And they would say like, hey, you want to come and eat dinner with us? You want to go over to the mess hall? And I remember just being sort of like frozen. And thinking like, oh, like we can just go eat a meal and there's not going to be like, we can just choose to do that. And like, it'll be a smooth night. And like, we don't have to worry that anyone's going to die or that like no one's going to yell at us. And a lot of times, like I would say no, because that just, it felt like I had something I needed to be tending to. Like I needed to like stay in my room to just like make sure everything was okay. Or like, what if, what if my mom calls and they need something at home with my brother? Like, I just didn't feel like I could calm down enough to like go eat with friends. Right. Um, and so that, um, was tough. I got really depressed. I I felt like I had lost my sense of purpose because my whole purpose growing up was like to keep the peace, to project this image, to care for my brother. And then I didn't know who I was or what I was supposed to do when I didn't have those jobs. And so I just felt depressed. Um, I gained a lot of weight. I started, I was struggling with like binge eating at that time as well. I would like not eat and then I would binge and kind of started going to just like talk therapy during that time. I think to um, just to, just to manage, just to like survive and manage like when I was going home for visits. Um, but hadn't really started to process any trauma yet because I was still being traumatized. And I think the therapist I was working with at the time saw that. But I remember being really driven by the fog. I think you guys have talked about the fog on the show before, fear, obligation, and guilt to to drive back there, to drive the four hours across our state, um, to just like check my dad's pills. Like, is he taking them to make sure that my brother is doing his homework um, and legitimately believing at that point in my life that like they may not survive without me. Like if I am not there, 
they could die or like at least my parents could die. So as Rhea is still struggling with the fear, obligation and guilt, Amelia, you have been living your life. So walk us through your experiences of just figuring things out. So fast forward, um, I met my now husband who is wonderful. Um, and essentially, I mean, that's, that's something that I think is really interesting is that I had to, I had to essentially teach myself how to ignore a lot of my instincts when it came to looking for a partner to be with, because I found that everything that I was quote unquote was attracted to was extremely unhealthy. Um, because I was, I, I didn't, I viewed regular healthy relationships as boring. Um, because I thought that, I thought that love was the constant explosive fighting that our parents did. And I didn't know that there were people who just lived in homes where yes, there were arguments, but they were respectful and they would talk about things afterwards. And, um, so the idea of being in that type of relationship, like I would meet these nice guys and I was like, oh, this is so boring. Like you're not you're not verbally abusing me or like making me, (laughs) this isn't, this isn't, this is boring. Um, and I was able to kind of figure that pattern out. And I, I met my now husband and now I'm in a very good, healthy, stable relationship. Um, and I was very lucky in the fact that he became very aware of our family dynamic very early on, very understanding was very good at like trying to help me set healthy boundaries um and the relationship with my parents just continued to get worse and worse i got my grown up job and was able to become financially independent from them which was very helpful because they would use that and uh so i tried really hard to distance myself more and more you know and just try to limit the interactions that i would have with them but every time we would have an interaction it would it would take you like 2 or 3 days to come back down from what had happened it was just so triggering Um, and I think my husband watched me go through that over and over again. And I would, you know, I would have these conversations with my mom or dad and they would just cause disagreements out of not out of absolutely nothing. And he would watch me have these panic attacks and he's just like, you know, it was, it was hard for him to understand because he's lucky that he had a very, he had a very good upbringing, very normal, healthy parents. So I don't think he could understand how or why parents would treat their kids that way, but he knew how it made me feel. And so he would always tell me, you know, I support you. And if you want to continue to talk to your parents and fix things, you know, that's your decision. Um, But we talked about very early on in our marriage that once we decided to have children, that the interactions with our parents was either going to have to be very limited or if they couldn't respect our boundaries, it may not be able to exist at all, which is essentially what ended up happening. So we had our first child six years ago and uh, pregnancy was difficult from the relationship point with my parents. Um, I don't know. My mom just kind of said a lot of awkward things and just kind of overstepped a lot. And then I remember when I let her know that I didn't want anyone else in the delivery room when our daughter was born. And I just wanted it to be my husband and I, you know, I didn't tell her that it was because 
I felt that she would just make it a negative experience and stress me out the entire time. I essentially just said, because I just didn't want a whole bunch of people in the room. Um, but that led to a giant argument and lots of verbal abuse about how, you know, it was always that we weren't grateful to, to them. So our daughter was born. I was still speaking to our parents at that time. Our parents um, are big smokers. They always have been. Um, and that was something that from the time I got pregnant, actually, when I told them I was pregnant, that same day, I very politely told them, and I had told them this before we even got pregnant, I told them that they would not be allowed to smoke around our children in any capacity. And then when our daughter was born, she actually was born with um, a congenital heart defect that we didn't know she would had that she had before she was born. So we also had additional health concerns that we were watching out for. Um, so that became a really big source of tension between us. They essentially would mock me. Um, I kind of had to distance myself a little bit more from that because at the time I was also going through a lot of postpartum anxiety. Um, and then what ended up kind of being the straw that broke the camel's back for me with speaking to our parents was um, there was one day it was while I was on maternity leave and my mom had wanted to come over to the house to see the baby and she was a wonderful baby but she did she got sick a lot um, she had a lot of ear infections and so there were a lot of sleepless nights like especially early on and, um, my mom had asked to come over and I would always get so stressed every time she would ask to do anything with me. If I knew I was going to have to say no, even if it, if it was for a normal reason, because it would never, it was never okay. There were even a lot of times where our mom would want us to do stuff with her. And I would tell her that I had to work and that wasn't okay either. Like it just wasn't okay. No matter what you had to do, no matter how important it was, you needed to stop whatever you were doing and make time for them, period. Um, and so when she had asked to come over this particular day, I had been up most of the night with our baby. I was exhausted. The baby was exhausted. She also wasn't feeling well. And so I let my mom know, you know, I, you know, we would love to see you, but today's really not a great day. And then you know, in a normal relationship, you should be able to just leave it at that. And that person can just respect the fact that, oh, she has a new baby. She's very tired. Like she just isn't up for visitors today. But I knew that that wasn't going to fly. So then, you know, I sent her like a, a, a paragraph long text explaining all the reasons why it just wasn't a good day, you know, because I felt like I had to have all this supporting evidence to maybe help her like not be so mad at me that I wouldn't let her come over. And one of her favorite things to do when she got really upset was she would try to call you first so she could like berate you over the phone, but she learned pretty quickly that we wouldn't answer. So she would just send you these just novels of text messages, which I listening to your podcast, I heard somebody call it a dissertation of hate, which I, <laughs> is incredibly accurate. <laughs> it's actually a term I plan to use from now on if I ever have to again. But um, it, yeah, it would just be like these paragraphs of just like how horrible you were. And, and that's essentially, that's what happened. I sent her, you know, very polite message just saying like, oh, we were up all night. I'm exhausted. I'm dealing with this, yada, yada, yada. 
and she just absolutely lost it, which I kind of assumed would, would come. And so, you know, my plan was generally just to like put my phone on do not disturb and just let all the texts come through. And then what I, what my husband and I had agreed upon and what we had decided to do was that when this would happen, I would just put my phone down and not read them. And then I would let my husband read them. And then he would kind of try to give me like cliff notes to decide if it was something that was worth me actually reading or if it was just going to be really triggering and upsetting. And then if, if I agreed that I just didn't want to read it, then he would just delete it for me because sometimes I would just spiral because of what they had said. Um, and sometimes it just wasn't worth it. But on this particular occasion, I wasn't really... I don't know, he wasn't home or something. So I ended up just reading them, which I always regretted after I did. But in this particular one, she went on and on about, um, they loved and probably still do. I don't know because we don't speak to them anymore, but they loved to call me a sociopath. They loved it. They loved to constantly say that I didn't have any emotions. I didn't feel anything for them in particular, Essentially, any time that you tried to put up a boundary with them and say, you know, I'm not comfortable with this, or I don't want to do that, they would just say like, you don't care about us, you don't have any feelings, you're a robot, you're, you know, they would come up with all these names for you about not having any feelings. And so my mom did that and said that I was, I think she had just seen my daughter like three days prior. It wasn't like she hadn't seen her, they had had some type of like, not able to see their granddaughter relationship. Um, but she said that I was, I was like holding her granddaughter hostage from her, um, and all these things. And then she sent me this. And then the next one, which was the reason why the relationship ended was because she sent me this long message stating that I, um, was an unfit mother, which I don't, I don't, just the things she would say were incredible, but she just somehow decided that I wasn't taking a good job. I wasn't doing a good job taking care of her granddaughter and that she would be reaching out to an attorney to um, try to get custody of my daughter from me, which is wild because there's, there's no reason why that would ever happen. You know, like she had a stable home. She had two loving parents. It's just absolutely ridiculous. But at the time I was already struggling with postpartum anxiety and a little bit of depression. And I think our daughter was like six weeks old. And, you know, I'm sure if there are any moms listening, the idea of somebody telling you, like, I'm going to come and take your new baby away from you. No, no, that's not, not okay. Um, so I actually called my husband because I was so upset that I just went into like a complete panic attack and he had to come home from work. And we had a long talk that night and we essentially just came to the decision that this really, this just couldn't continue. Honestly, I knew that calling them on the phone wasn't going to be an option. So I think I just sent a message to my mom, essentially saying that, um, this relationship wasn't going to be able to continue. And following that, my mom actually showed up at our home and I wouldn't come to the door because I, you know, didn't want to talk to her. And she actually knocked on the front door for probably a good 20 minutes, like just stood there and just knocked, just knocked repeatedly. And she had come with this giant bag that I'm assuming had a present for our daughter in it. I don't really know. And I didn't answer the door. So she proceeded to walk all the way around the whole perimeter of our house and knock on every window um, looking for me and trying to like look inside the windows. And I didn't respond to that either. 
And so then um, she went back to our front porch and she just laid down on our front porch and started crying and probably laid there for about 15 minutes or so and just refused to leave. I think she was there for upwards of 30 to 45 minutes. And I didn't want to go outside and speak to her because I just knew there wasn't going to be any type of rational conversation. I didn't want her coming into the house. I didn't, I just couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. Um, So I actually ended up having to call the police and asking a police officer to come and ask her to leave. I found out from other people that the stories that they spin to people that, you know, are just terrible. And she, you know, told everyone like, oh, she called the police on me and I had no idea she was going to do that. And she tried to get me arrested. And none of those things are true. I, you know, just let them know. I just need you to send someone over here because I'm trying to go no contact with this person and I don't feel comfortable talking to them. And then after that, I did not speak to our parents for two or three years. And then I was actually pregnant with our second child. And um, that's actually when Rhea and I had been in communication this entire time. Um, and I think this might be a good time for Rhea to come in because Rhea unfortunately suffered a lot of abuse due to the fact that she still was in communication with me and our children and our parents were not. Okay. Um, so yeah, at that point, Amelia had gone no contact. I'm five years younger than Amelia. Um, and I just wasn't there yet. Um, I wasn't ready. There was still so much of me that was just like holding on to hope that maybe if I try this boundary or maybe if they go to this therapy, or maybe if we just do something different, we can still be a family to the point that I was actually pursuing my degree to be a mental health therapist at this time, which looking back, I realized was like a desperate effort on my end to try to learn enough to be able to fix things, I, I guess. After my sister went no contact, um, I was determined to try and maintain a relationship with my parents and with my sister and my new niece. And so I tried to do that. I was living four hours away. And so I'd plan these visits to come back to my hometown where my sister and my parents were living. And I had to try to figure out how I was going to divvy up my time. And if I was staying with my parents, which unfortunately, usually I was, I would have to craft like these elaborate lies of where I was going so that they didn't know I was going to see my sister and my niece. Um, I mean, they knew I still had a relationship with her, but it was one of those things that if I could find a way to not mention it, um, I didn't want to mention it because I knew it was going to be abuse if I did. So I would say that I was going to see a friend and their baby or you know, some lie to get away to be able to go and see my sister and see my niece. And my sister had been pretty clear and, and her husband that they did not want to share any photos or any information about their child with our parents, which at the time, um, there's this dissonance for me because I understood, like, I wanted to keep this baby safe and that was really important, but I guess it wasn't important enough to me yet to keep myself safe. So I was like, 100%, yes, I will follow that boundary. I'm not going to send them any, I'm not going to show them any pictures. I'm not going to give them any information, of course. But my parents knew 
that I was still seeing my sister and her child. And um, I mean, this happened all the time. I had rehearsed with my therapist, like how I would say, no, mom, I'm not comfortable talking about Amelia and her child. No, mom, I'm not comfortable showing you any pictures. She's not my child. So it's not my decision. Who gets to see pictures of her, et cetera. And that was just always met with, um, with verbal abuse that I was, I had no empathy. They called me a sociopath as well. That, oh, what kind of, what kind of grad program are you in? Like, what are they teaching you that you would be okay with this? Like you're learning from a bunch of kooks. You don't know what you're talking about. And it escalated to the point one time when I was maybe, oh, 23 or 24. And um, I was ready to head back home. I had visited them for the weekend and they knew that I had seen my sister and they were pressuring me to show them pictures of the child. And I wouldn't. Um, and so they, they stole my car keys so that I couldn't leave. And they were both like yelling at me and like up in my face. I remember I was like backed up against the deck. And I remember being afraid that my dad was going to push me off the deck. And um, I'm just like begging for my keys, begging for my keys. And finally, my mom threw my car keys at my face. And so I like beelined, grabbed my stuff, ran to my car. And my dad somehow got out there first and um, had like a razor blade, like a box cutter um, and was threatening to slash my tire so that I couldn't leave because I wouldn't show them pictures of this baby. And so he's like waving the box cutter in my face and I just like pushed past him and I left. But then this is one of those instances where I had paid for my car, but it was in their name. And so as soon as I left, they left me a voicemail that uh, they had called the police and reported my car is stolen. And so I had to wait. I, I just parked the car. I didn't know. I was obviously panicking. I didn't know what to do. So I called my sister and she came and got me. So when I, after I say all that, like it sounds so wild that I then circled back around and tried to, to rope my sister back into this system. Right. But I did. And I, I knew that like I had gone low contact because I was living far away. Um, I only talked to them once a week on Sundays. That was like my rule. And I would come back and visit maybe once a month, maybe once every two months, sometimes less than that. Um, and so I was like, well, maybe my sister can just go low contact too. And at this time, our dad had had all these health problems. So I think for whatever reason, when you're a survivor of abuse, um, especially of, of parental abusers, it's like it's like illness and death give people a free pass sometimes. Like sometimes suddenly when they're sick, then it's like, oh, does that mean I have to go back? Or does that mean I have to be in a relationship with this person because they're ill now? So they seem weaker. And I think that was sort of like the the justification I used to try to convince my sister to come back and go long, low contact with them. So right here, you're still trying to bring your sister back into this cult-like environment. But eventually, when you're in grad school, you do start learning more about what is actually going on. So walk us through this part of your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so at this point, I'm 
I'm in graduate school for therapy or it's, or I've just finished it. And that was a really interesting experience for me because I was learning so much about mental health disorders. And um, what that did for me is it, it helped to color more of the dysfunction in our cult that was happening. Um, but unfortunately or fortunately, it also um, allowed me to like make sense more of some of my parents' behavior. Um, like I could kind of start putting late. I mean, of course, I would never like officially diagnose them. Um, but I could kind of start like putting labels on what I thought I was seeing and learning more about where those those diseases come from. Um, and I don't need to say like what I thought they had going on, but what that did for me is it kind of started to like give me more empathy for them. I was like, oh man, these people are really, really sick. Right. And I'm learning about how to work with people who are sick. And um where I was in that journey is I guess I wasn't, I was still willing to prioritize their wellness or their happiness over like what was safe and what was okay for me. Like, I don't know that I had even really stopped to consider that all too much. I was just like, wow, these people have extensive trauma histories. Wow. I think these mental health disorders might be happening here. So then how can my sister and I basically pretzel like, like relational Taekwondo, like relational magic that I felt like I was trying. I would come up with so many strategies with my therapist to be like, okay, if we try this, then maybe we'll get a different reaction because for whatever reason, I was still feeling this incredible responsibility and this onus to make it work somehow. Um, and I would say at that same time, I was um, either engaged. Yeah, I was engaged to be married to my ex-husband now. Um, and he uh, wasn't great about the whole thing in the sense that I, like I said, I only spoke with them once per week on Sundays because I knew it didn't feel good when I talked to them. Um, but it would take me like two or three days after talking to them to just like be a human again. Um, like I would just sort of freeze and like shut down, not be able to talk too much, not be too creative, not be able to just like be me. Um, and that was something that he pointed out that I, and he kind of made me feel bad about it sometimes, which wasn't cool, but I did appreciate that he, that he pointed it out. Um, because then I started to see like, okay, well, even if I only talk to them once per day on Sunday or once per week on Sundays, then I'm losing three days of every week. And like, how much of my life is that? And how much of my life am I willing to feel like uh, a zombie, right? Like I just get numb. I get so numb when I would interact with them. And around this time, I also started doing um, like EMDR. I was diagnosed with complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, I started doing EMDR with eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy. It was helping a lot and it has helped me a lot to kind of start thinking about like, like I'm not, I'm not a kid anymore. I'm not I'm not the kid who has to try to make this 
all better and make it go away and fix it for everybody. So I think that's when I really started moving in that direction. And then at the same time, I was planning a wedding. And so um, I I would say that definitely played into my position or my decision to ask my sister to come back into the fold because I really wanted all the members of my family present at my wedding. And she ended up not being able to come because of some complications with her pregnancy. But, uh, you know, she was involved with the bridal shower um, and other parts of my wedding that were important to me. But at the end of the day, like that wasn't even a great decision because my mom made me cry on my wedding day because she said I wasn't spending enough time with her. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, um, yeah, go ahead. Just for one second, I have one question here for Amelia, and and this one is for someone who listens to the show. I'm going to ask this question specific for them. How did you feel having to go, or did you have feel pressure going to the things for your sister at all, and then possibly having to see your mom? And how did you handle all of those different things, specifically your relationship with your sister at this time? Because that puts you in a little bit of a rock and a hard place as far as wanting to be there for your sister on this big day and maybe all these little things, but then putting you into a a terrible situation that you never wanted to be in again. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think in my particular situation, it was more important to me to be there for my sister than it was to avoid being around my parents. Um, but it was very hard. Um, you know, I wanted to make sure that her and I still had a good and healthy relationship, but I also needed and wanted to maintain a lot of boundaries about how far my parents were able to get themselves into my life. So what I decided to do, what my husband and I had talked about and what we decided to do during that time was that I would interact with my parents, but my husband and my children would not. Because I essentially told my parents when I decided to attempt to have a relationship with them again, we reviewed essentially, or I reviewed all of the the boundaries that I needed from them and was very clear that if those were not maintained, that this would not be able to work. And I also let them know that at this time, I was not going to be involving my children in their lives until they had proven to me that they could actually maintain some type of healthy behavior. Because, you know, the cycle of abuse was very predictable. You could set boundaries for maybe a couple months and then they could do that. Um, But it was very, you know, it was hard. I really tried to just focus on the fact that I was trying to be there for Rhea. And, you know, I think the hardest thing for me, honestly, and this, this sounds terrible to say this out loud, but honestly, every time I saw my parents or around my parents, it was just very difficult for me to even overcome like, the massive feeling of just anger that I had towards them. And I'm not, and I'll be the first to admit, I am not good at hiding my emotions. It is not something that I am good at. I don't know if that's because most of the time I don't feel that much at all. So when I do, it's like incredibly 
um, I don't know, overwhelming, but, um, I honestly, I think that was the most frustrating part is that I wanted to enjoy these important moments in my sister's life. And I knew that, you know, just being around my parents was essentially putting me in a bad mood, even though I was trying, I tried really hard to just kind of ignore it. But then, um, I was just constantly worried that they were going to do something to ruin Rhea's good day because that was definitely something that they like a lot of narcissists do they try to save some of these things up for special occasions so they can make it about them um and they certainly did that at my wedding and so I was very worried that they were going to do that to Rhea and then to add to that the way that the timing worked out I actually wasn't able to attend Rhea's wedding because it was four hours away and my due date for my baby that I was pregnant with was um, five days after that. And my first, in my first childbirth, I actually almost, I almost died. Um, and so my OB told me you absolutely cannot, you have to be here because I had specific things that I needed done if I were to go into labor. Um, and he told me that I would be putting myself and my son's life at risk. So I actually wasn't able to be there for Rhea's wedding itself, you know, which I think she was very, she was very understanding, I felt horrible. That was one of the worst conversations I've ever had to have to tell her that I couldn't come to that. Um, you know, one, of course, because I wanted to be there, but two, like, I think kind of the unspoken thing that her and I really didn't talk about was that I wanted to be there to run interference on our mom because we knew exactly what she was probably going to try to do to the fact that Rhea actually luckily has very good close friends that she was able to kind of, are you okay, Rhea? Okay. Yeah, I don't know why that like made me want to crash. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> no, so yeah, that was just tough cuz I, you know, I felt like I was I just I mean, I wanted to be there and I couldn't cuz I had to watch out for me and my child and then I kind of was like leaving my I was leaving my other child to deal with our mom. <laughs> Which sounds so weird, but that's essentially how I felt, you know, cuz I mm-hmm. felt like that was my job and that's what I wanted to do is I wanted her to be able to enjoy her day. And I just knew, you know, which unfortunately we weren't wrong. That's what mom did. But um, it was very challenging because I did. And I think that that situation can be different for everyone. You know, I think that if it's something that you don't have to be there for and your sibling understands not needing to be around them, I think that's totally okay too. It's just, it's really hard when you still have people that you're close to that have relationships with people that you don't speak to anymore. And I would just say the point I would make I think you're talking to a specific listener. This is Rhea speaking. I want to, I want to say that even if my sister had been able to come, the outcome would not have been any different. My mom, because she was in attendance, was going to do everything she could to make sure that I felt guilty or bad or some kind of way that wasn't positive that day. So if you are a sibling or someone who feels that like, pressure, obligation, or guilt to be at something special for that reason. Like, just know it's not likely you're going to change the outcome anyway. So if you need to do something to like, keep yourself safe and okay, then do that thing. Um, It'll probably still happen if that person, if the the narcissist is there, right? So Rhea, after the wedding, uh, how did things devolve from there to the point where you did go no contact? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so it, for, 
for me, after the wedding, most of the abuse that was directed towards me was still because my sister did decide to go no contact again. Um, and so after that happened, I set those same boundaries that I had had the first go around of, you know, I'm not going to be a messenger for you to my sister, I'm not going to tell you anything about her life, I'm not going to show you pictures, and they didn't like that. Um, and so I was getting dissertations of hate by um, text message during our weekly Sunday FaceTime or um, phone calls. I would always include my ex-husband in those phone calls because they seem, my mom particularly seemed to be on better behavior if someone else was looped in on the call. Um, but then I would get, uh, I would be guilt tripped because I wasn't like interacting with her enough or I was talking to my dad too much, or I was talking to my ex-husband too much. So there wasn't like enough attention being directed at her. So those Sunday calls weren't enough. Um, and then I reached a point with my therapist and with my husband, you know, uh, we were adult, like adults by that point, we had our own home. So when we did go home, we would um, get like an Airbnb instead of staying at my parents' house, because that just felt a lot safer to me. Like, okay, if they are in a place, then I have somewhere I can go to, to get away and be safe. Um, but when I tried to put that distance there or set that boundary, I just remember my dad telling me one time, he said, you know, Rhea, we've known for a long time that your sister was a sociopath, but, um, the last few months, your mom and I have been talking a lot. We've been trying to work out whether you are or not too. So just like making it known, I guess, that like they were talking bad about me or that they they thought I had no empathy or they, you know, that my parents thought I was a sociopath um, because I wanted to stay in an Airbnb instead of uh, staying at their house. And so I noticed that like the more and more I tried to dif differentiate, individuate, the abuse was increasing. And my ex-husband and I at the time, um, we weren't anywhere close to wanting to have kids, but we had decided that similar to my, what my sister had decided that if we were going to have children, that at that point I was going to go no contact with them because I knew that I, I couldn't be the type of mom that I want to be if I still had a relationship with them. Because I, I, I know my sister can speak to this. It just it takes everything you have to be in a relationship with someone like that. And I wouldn't have anything left over and they sure as shit would never be allowed to treat my children the way that they treated us. So that was always the plan that, okay, we're going to go no contact when, if we have children, but it was getting to the point where I started realizing like, wait, why do I have to wait until a kid comes into the picture? Like, why am I not worth being safe? And why am I not worth having some modicum of peace in my life? And it happened in October one day it was over the phone. I wasn't planning to go no contact that day. Um, but they were asking me something about my sister. That's always where it came from. And I was holding that boundary and my dad was just screaming at me and telling me, I have no empathy and I'm a sociopath and we both are. And I was just hyperventilating and like, you know, crying and having a panic attack. And I just said, don't call me, don't write me. 
I'm done. And I hung up and I blocked their numbers and um, I blocked them on every social media and I haven't spoken to them or unblocked them since then. So now that both of you are at this place of no contact with your parents, how has your relationship been with each other in the aftermath? Uh, what's your relationship like with your brother? And how are you feeling? And Amelia, since you went no contact first, uh, you go first here. Um, it's been about six years since I have had communication with our parents on a regular basis. Um, and there is a lot of grief and it's not, it's not in the way that I think people assume when I say that people that have regular relationships with their parents, it's grief for something that never existed. Um, because when I think about, and a lot of people that have, I would say most everyone who has normal relationships with their parents can't really understand this, but I don't miss my parents. I don't miss them. I don't miss the relationship that we had. I am not sad and I do not grieve the loss of the people who were our parents because there was very little good to that. Um, but I do grieve very much the relationship that I always wished I could have had. You know, I think for the longest time, Raya and I both had this like unspoken thing that we both thought of like, maybe if I just say the right thing or I explain what I need from them better, they'll they'll understand. Like maybe if I explain the boundary or what I need from them in a different way, they can do a better job. Um, like it was somehow your responsibility to make them understand how you needed to be treated. And um, getting to the point in therapy where I finally realized that I cannot change them and nothing that I'm going to say or do is going to change them was very difficult to accept. Um, but once I accepted that, it kind of just began this grieving process of grieving people that never existed and also people that are still very much alive and only live about 30 minutes away from me. Um, so it is, it's that part is challenging, but honestly, for the most part, it has just been abundantly positive. I did not realize, I knew that it was very time and energy consuming, but I had no idea the amount of emotional and mental energy that I was spending daily on trying to survive in a relationship with my parents. Um, I would say I was kind of frozen for the first two years, just in grief and like trying to figure out what to do with myself outside of just continuing normal life. Like as far as my relationship with my parents, I was just frozen and like not doing anything with it other than going to therapy and trying to process it, which was mostly just realizing that I had um, CPTSD and how to deal with that and identify what my triggers were. I didn't even, I didn't realize how bad it was, I think. Um, but then after I kind of got through those first two years, I feel like, which that's the other part that makes me upset is I feel like I'm grieving the loss of like this child and adolescent that I never got to know because I I'm 35 now and I've just now spent the last three years trying to figure out who I am and what I like um, because nobody had ever asked me and honestly I had never even thought about it because I didn't have the energy to devote to becoming my own person in any way. Um, and I'm, I'm very lucky that, 
you know, my marriage and my relationship started before all of this. And my husband has been very on board and has watched me change a lot. Um, and he has been totally okay with that. And he says he thinks it's been fun to like figure out more about who I really am because I was just like this shell of a person for so long, I think. Um, so the grieving is definitely hard. Um, there's a lot of relationships that you kind of lose along the way too. Uh, Raya and I have a massive family. Um, on our mom's side alone, I think if you count it up, I think we have about 54 cousins. And when this happened, I have never, I have never had a single one of them reach out to me in any type of way to see how I'm doing or to even glean any insight into my side of the story whatsoever. The only contact that I have had from them has been from two of my mom's siblings, an aunt and an uncle, essentially just saying that they don't understand why I'm doing this to my parents and that I'm going to regret this when they die and when they're older. Um, and all of these people live in the same town that I live in. And I essentially lost my entire family. I didn't just lose my parents. I lost my brother because he's still in the home with our parents. And unfortunately, um, I have a lot of fear. Raya talks to him a little more than I do. I have a lot of fear around the fact that if I communicate with him, my parents are going to find out and use it against him. Um, and, you know, the idea of like causing him any additional stress is really bothersome to me. So I, I don't talk to him, which, I mean, it's, it's a very complicated issue. That's not the only reason. There's a lot of reasons why I don't talk to him. None of which are his fault. It's, it's all focused around our parents' control over him and things that I'm afraid that they may use against him in ways that I'm afraid they may use it to try to find a foothold back into my life in some way because they are so close to me physically. Um, they do know where I live and they have dropped things off at our house before. And I've also seen my mother on security cameras just um, showing up at our house and looking through our windows when we're home and not knowing that she's there. So I do have a lot of, I actually have a fair amount of concerns around my safety and I worry about our father having a psychotic break again and doing something violent. Yeah. So the grief is very real. Um, I've come to terms with it a little more and I'm trying to focus on getting to know myself and learning more about myself. And also, you know, I feel like getting to know Rhea better because both of us were in this survival mode for so long. Um, and I feel like we both and we joke about it sometimes i think we both still like we're kind of afraid to have any type of disagreement i feel like we're both always like so polite to each other so polite like even if one of us is really upset because i think which you know we talk about it and we say like we're not gonna do that but like we're both so afraid that the other one is gonna abandon like i think we're both just so worried we're all we've got <laughs> Which, you know, her and I are very lucky that through all of this, even when she was talking to our parents and I wasn't like, it wasn't a source of contention for us. I mostly was just worried about her talking to them. Like we have a very good relationship, but I don't think either one of us are very good about understanding that it's okay to like convey anger in a healthy way and not be worried that 
that person's just going to be like, well, you are terrible and I hate you. And I, (laughs) we just, we don't, so that is something I think we're still working on. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's really, I would say like overall it's largely positive, but there are a lot of, there's a lot of griefs and a lot of things that you kind of have to grieve that you didn't realize that you lost. And I have a lot more therapy that I need. Absolutely. But like I've told Raya, I, and I don't know that this is the healthy or the right answer, it, it, but it's just where I am right now. I have two young children that require things that young children need. Um, and I just, I don't, I don't have the mental bandwidth to open up a lot of those doors right now. I just don't because I know enough from the therapy that I have been through that there's a lot of stuff that I have not allowed myself to feel ever. Um, and I worry that once I open that up, like I'm probably just going to completely fall apart for a couple months because I haven't even touched a lot of that. And I am not, my children are six and three. I work a full-time job. I, I'm not at a place in my life where I can do that. So I kind of just have done the level of work that I need to, to be okay and be happy, but not enough to dive into what happened when I was a kid. So my hope is that when my children are older, I can do that. But I, I, I just, I can't do that right now. So. And Rhea, how about you? Um, well, I'm a lot fresher in this process, uh, than my sister. It's newer to me. So, um, it was October 21, um, 2021 that I went no contact with them. And I've been so grateful to have someone who has been like a few steps ahead of me and going through the grief. I mean, obviously we're different people, but there are plenty of times when I call her up and I'm like, did this, you know, have you felt this before? And she's like, yes, I know exactly what you're saying. Um, and two, I just, uh, in October of this year, my divorce was just finalized. So I kind of feel like I'm catching my breath a bit right now, but, um, I would say I would echo that I don't, I miss some things about my dad. My dad and I were a little bit closer than my sister and my dad were. So I do, I grieve that for sure. But I would say more than anything, watching um, my niece and nephew and like other children in my life growing up and like having more interactions with children, that brings up a lot of grief for me um, and for what we didn't get. So when I see my sister and I talk about this all the time, when I see the kinds of things that a six and a three-year-old are concerned about or worried about or happy about, um, I just feel so sad that we never got to be worried about normal kid things or that we never got to have our own interests or like get taken to a museum or get taken to a park or just like, just I'm devastated that we weren't nurtured in that way. Um, and we didn't get to be curious and innocent in the ways that children should be able to be curious and innocent. And that is like a lot of the grief that I'm still working through. Um, and in terms of like my healing, um, I would say the biggest thing that I struggle with is trusting myself um, because I spent all of my development, basically every choice that I made, every time I said I liked something, every time I decided to behave in a certain way, 
it was calculated to try and make sure that the adults in my life would keep me safe or would not harm me. Right. And so now I don't trust my gut. Like I, I don't, um, I'm working on like being more assertive because I never growing up, I also never really asserted myself like, Hey, this bothers me or Hey, this, I feel a certain way about this thing. Um, and so I just called my sister about this the other day in my current relationship, cause I'm struggling with it of like, okay, noticing something in your gut that bothers you. And then, um, you want to say something about it, but you don't, for me personally, I don't know sometimes if it's my hypervigilance or if I'm not going to say something because I'm just trying to be the golden child and like placate someone and keep things safe. So I really struggle with what is, what is okay to say it bothers you? What, when is it okay to share your feelings? When is it, or when are you maybe just triggered? Um, so I really struggle with, with trusting myself and knowing what I actually like and don't like and how I feel about things, which is disorienting. It's hard not to trust yourself. Um, but it, other than, I mean, it's still like, it's one of the best decisions I've ever made to go no contact. I've gotten so much time back. I'm living in another country right now. It's a part of the world that I've always wanted to live in. And I finally had the freedom to do that. And I'm really, really enjoying that. I've noticed that I used to have nightmares like pretty much every night about my whole family dying and it would be my fault. Um, and I don't have those nightmares as much anymore. It's usually like once a month or something. And it, it used to be every single night, even things like my body, like my, I had a lot of digestive problems before, which I know a lot of people with, um, with PTSD have digestive problems and those have gotten better. Um, I don't get headaches like I used to either, but no, I mean, I'm still working through the, like trusting myself and also just the fear of like, even though I'm living in this other country and I, I feel for my sister that she's in the same town as them, but I'll see people here sometimes who like look like my mom and I, my heart just stops and I, uh, I like feel paralyzed, even though there's, there's no way, there's no way they've come here, but that's definitely still something. Um, that I'm working through, but yeah, it's, we, we've gotten a lot closer. We, we are just now, like you asked us earlier, how we felt at the time when all of this was happening. And I feel like now we're finally starting to talk about that of like, what was that like for you? Oh yeah. Do you remember this? You know, and it's, it's the most therapeutic thing. And I feel, even though we're only a family of two now, like I feel so grateful that we have each other. Cause a lot of people don't have someone else, you know? So if you both had words of wisdom, what would they be? And Amelia, uh, you go first. I think I would say that regardless of who the relationship is with, if you feel that you are in a relationship like this with someone, um, you know, who is treating you like this or who you need to not have in your life anymore. You know, I feel like for so long I tried to make this work. And part of it was because I don't put a lot of, I'm not someone who puts a lot of stock in what people think. Um, but at the same time, there is kind of always that level of, Oh, well, you can't just not talk to your parents. Like that's not okay. Um, and I think that 
you are going to hear that from people. I still, to this day, get comments from people, you know, saying like, oh, well, that's your parents. Like, I'm sure you'll talk to them again someday. Or what are you going to do when they get old? What are you going to do when they're sick? Like, you'll take care of them, right? And all these things. And um, you don't, you don't owe that to them. You don't have to do that if it's causing you to feel like you're dying inside. Um, if you have laid out your boundaries, if you've communicated those clearly and they have time and time again violated those and been unable to respect you, you do not owe them anything just because they are the ones who raised you. You don't have to just continue to suffer through that. Um, I know that for me specifically, before I kind of tried to rewire my brain, I had to learn not to go with my initial reaction sometimes because my initial reaction or my initial feeling about something wasn't healthy because that was what I had learned from my parents. So I had to try to kind of relearn those things. And sometimes that means not listening to my initial gut reaction, unfortunately, which like Rhea said, is very disorienting, but that's where we're at. And Rhea, what are your words of wisdom? Um, for me, yeah, I would say two pieces. The first, the first is to anyone who might be in a situation where maybe you haven't, you aren't ready to go low contact or you aren't ready to go no contact and you have a sibling or someone else in your family who has like, um, I think it's just important for everyone to honor where everyone else is at. I don't think it would be healthy for anyone, honestly, to have a relationship with our parents just on the way that they, they treat people. But um, if someone else has made that decision to not speak to their own parents, please trust that they did not arrive at that decision lightly. Um, it is still one of the hardest things that I've ever had to do. Um, and even if you don't agree with that decision, even if you don't understand it, because maybe you had supportive parents, um, just if you don't have anything supportive to say about it, please don't say anything. Cause it's, it's hard. It's, um, it's like killing off your own parents, even though they're still alive. And it's, it's, it's so hard to do. Um, the second thing I, I would say is that, um, if you are the child of people who are abusive in this way, like, please remember that just because someone gave birth to you, it does not give them license to treat you this way, because that's the refrain we often heard was like, I've given you so much, I've sacrificed so much for you. Um, and you don't owe anyone anything just because you were born. You know, in fact, if you're born, you are owed a basic level of safety and security and having your basic needs met. And if you're not getting that, then it's not your fault. Well, Amelia and Rhea, thank you for being a guest on our show today. This is the first time we've had siblings on the show, this experiment that we're doing today. And it was really interesting to hear both of your experiences and I'm happy that both of you 
are out and you really did a service for everyone today in sharing your story. And I really just can't thank you enough for uh, being here with us today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been great. So once again, thank you, Amelia and Rhea, for being a guest on our show. And if you want to be a guest like Amelia and Rhea were today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions. And please do send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our guest form and press the submit button. And please do read all the instructions and send it in the format that we ask for. Also at our website, we have our very own support group. So at the top of the page of NarcissistApocalypse.com, there's a button that says support group. When you click on that button, it takes you to our support group page. It is our very own safe social network. And there you'll find that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday nights. We have forum boards for you to post on to get the validation that you need and for you to validate other survivors. And it's just a great group of people in our support group. So join our support group today. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at domesticshelters.org. There they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you're going through. They have every phone number, every website address, and email address for every shelter and agency, no matter how big or small your town is, domesticshelters.org has it there. It is a great organization, so please do visit them today. And that is it for our show today. So for myself, Amelia, and Rhea, we hope you have a good night.